I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, we're going global as we investigate language, how it's developed, whether it can boost your brain and even affect your behaviour. Plus, the rodents that provide new information for stroke therapy, exercise in a pill, and how very hungry caterpillars could solve our plastic problem. I'm Tim Revel. I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up is the condition that occurs every two seconds worldwide and is the second largest cause of death, stroke. When a stroke happens, the most important tissues of our body, the brain and heart, are starved of oxygen, causing cell damage. To improve therapies for stroke patients, we need to understand how the human body copes without oxygen. And one researcher at the University of Cambridge thinks he may have found the answer in the form of a small rodent called a naked mole rat. Dr Ewan Sinjen Smith and his colleagues were able to identify a new mechanism used by the naked mole rats to maintain an energy supply to the cells in their body without using oxygen. He told Tom Crawford more about these fascinating creatures. Politely, one can describe them as a, as a cocktail sausage with legs and teeth. Um, but they're a very unusual rodent. They're about the same size as a mouse, um, and they're very unusual for a number of aspects. They're the only cold-blooded mammal we're aware of. They live for over 30 years, even though based on their mass, you'd predict them to live somewhere between three and five. They also have a very unusual social structure, which is they're what we call eusocial. So that's when you have a, a colony of animals, up to 300, but usually near 100 for the mole rat. Um, and it's led by a queen, who's the only breeding female. There's a couple of males who are, who are the breeding males, and all of the other animals are workers. So it's a very highly social mammal. And you've discovered how they are able to survive without oxygen and still produce energy. But, like, why, why is this important? Um, so the mole rats live in these large colonies underground. So they're permanently subterranean rodents. And obviously you've got a lot of animals underground. They're breathing. And if you're breathing, you're using up the oxygen and you're generating a lot of carbon dioxide. But there's not the same supply of fresh air there is, say, for us when we're just walking around above ground. And so these animals have um, adapted over, throughout evolution to an environment that's low in oxygen. So it's important for them to be able to function normally that they can deal with much lower levels of oxygen than we can. And what did you do specifically in these experiments? So in these experiments, we first of all wanted to identify how resistant is the naked mole rat to this lack of oxygen, a condition we call hypoxia. If we compare this first of all to the human condition, when a human has a stroke, there's um, a blood clot usually in the brain which prevents oxygen getting to the brain. And the nerve cells where there is no oxygen die. And what we want to do in stroke is try to protect the nerve cells from dying so that fewer cells die. So it's all about getting oxygen to the right place. And what we were trying to see in the mole rat was how, considering that they've evolved in this low oxygen environment, how resistant are they to a lack of oxygen? So when you expose a mouse, our model of a human, to a lower level of oxygen, they, like humans, experience um, brain death quite quickly. Whereas the mole rat is able to go for almost 20 minutes with experiencing no brain death and the animals are perfectly happy and are able to survive this period of you know, a complete absence of oxygen. Having identified this behaviour in the mole rat, the question facing Ewan and his colleagues was how are they doing this on a cellular level? In particular, what's going on with the key organs that are needed to sustain life, the heart and the brain? When the naked mole rat is exposed to this long level of, of lack of oxygen, the heart rate drops dramatically to about 20-25% of its normal rate, but it keeps going. 
So somehow it must be getting energy from somewhere in the absence of oxygen. It can't generate energy by the normal processes that we as mammals do. So the heart keeps on going. Similarly, if we look at the brain, the brain activity is able to keep on going in the absence of oxygen. Obviously not forever, but for a much longer period of time than compared to the mouse. So the question is then, well, how is the mole rat able to do this? How is it that the cells in the heart and the brain can keep on going? And again, coming back to stroke, this is really exciting. If we can understand how the mole rat cells keep going, maybe this is a way for which we can um, generate new therapies to, to prevent nerve cells in a human patient dying when they have a stroke. As humans, there are different ways that we can generate energy in cells. Some of them require oxygen, which we call aerobic respiration, and some of them don't, and this is anaerobic respiration. An important part of the anaerobic respiration process is called glycolysis, and this requires glucose, so sugary syrup. But the mole rats are actually doing glycolysis using something else. What we're able to identify is that the mole rat is able to use fructose to generate energy in the absence of, of oxygen. Now, we can also use fructose, but the difference is in the mole rat, in the heart and in the brain, it's got much higher levels of a protein that enables cells to transport fructose from the blood into the cells. So in this period where there's a lack of oxygen and it, can't, and it uses up all the normal glucose supplies within cells, the mole rat can utilise fructose in the blood to keep on generating energy. And again, this can't go on forever, but it's able to, for a much longer period of time, sustain a basal level of activity in the cells so they don't die. So now that we understand how the mole rats do this, is the idea to try and you know, make human brain cells and heart cells do this glycolysis using fructose? But I think part of the problem is, obviously, if you have your stroke patient, we know that we can't just inject them with a large bolus of fructose because they don't have the transport proteins to get them into the brain cells, for example. So we've got this new way of understanding how the mole rat cells keep going. And I think what it's really done is opened our eyes up to understand more about what is enough, what is sufficient for a nerve cell to keep going. So they don't need to be performing aerobic respiration as we usually think. It's a huge leap forward in understanding how do nerve cells or how can nerve cells survive without oxygen. And the more we understand about that, the greater chance we have of generating a novel neuroprotective strategy for preventing nerve cell death in humans who've had a stroke. Dr Ewan Sinjen Smith speaking to Tom Crawford, and that work was published in the journal Science. Now, can you read minds? Maybe not to Darren Brown's standards, but actually most of us do this every day. We can usually gauge how other people are feeling, whether they're happy or sad. This is known as empathy. And some people are better at doing this than others. Research out this week suggests it may be linked to how well you can monitor your own heartbeat. Punit Shah, lecturer and researcher at Anglia Ruskin University and King's College London, got people to estimate their own heart rate, a measure of something called interoception, and to perform a task involving working out other people's emotions, a measure of empathy. I went to see Punit to find out what he and his team discovered. We found, after performing both sets of tasks, that there was quite a close link between people's performance on the heart rate task and the task involving watching the social situations. Why on earth would this be the case? It was almost guaranteed to be the case. When you think about the way in which we deal with emotion, you know, we see someone that we dislike, we might feel our heart rate elevate slightly, we might see a dangerous situation, we feel our heart rate increase. Um, and it's in those situations where we need to be able to perceive our heart rate and respond appropriately. And this seems very closely linked to emotion. It's something that's been known for almost 100 years, but the evidence for this link has actually been remarkably sparse. 
So thinking of an example, a time I would sort of feel an emotion of someone else, you're watching someone do a live talk and they forget their lines and you go, oh, would this be a case of your own heartbeat increasing as a result of their sort of struggle? And then you hear or feel this as a result, feel like you're feeling the emotion too. Yeah, it's a that's a very good example where what you described really is um, empathy happening, where you sort of feel their pain almost. And this process whereby feeling your internal sensations, feeling your stomach sort of clench up or your heart rate increase, feeling all of those things helps you to understand that situation. Now, although the way you've described it seems incredibly intuitive and it, you know, many people think everyone is able to do this. But what we're finding is there are quite striking individual differences. Some people are really able to do this well. Equally, however, there are others who really struggle at perceiving their own heartbeat and therefore struggle to understand others. Okay, I'm quite keen to see where I'd fit on this. Is it right if I try the uh, dialed down version of the experiment? Yeah, I think we can give that a try. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what should we do? First of all, I'd like you to just sit on your chair upright and just try to relax, Mm -hmm. even though you're holding the mic. Um, (laughs) But just try to have your arms as relaxed as possible on the armrest. Now, what, what I'm going to do is try and find your pulse. I'm going to say, ready, steady, go. And as soon as I say go, I'd like you to close your eyes and try and count your heartbeats. Okay, then. So close your eyes. Stop. Okay. What did you think? 15. 15? It was actually 28. Oh, no. What does that mean? So it doesn't mean anything specifically. It doesn't mean that you're sort of abnormal in any way. There's natural variation in it. I can't do the full calculation now, but it suggests that you aren't perhaps as good at interoception as some other individuals. So if I was on your chart, you'd expect me to have low empathy. It's possible that you may have um, slightly lower levels of empathy or theory of mind, but it's like most people that you're, you, some, you sit somewhere in the middle. You sit somewhere around the average where you make a reasonable number of mistakes and it's likely you have quite an average score on the theory of mind or the social situations task. And with your link here, how certain are you that one causes the other? Could it not be that there's a third factor, say intelligence? Are intelligent people just good at measuring their own heartbeat and good at telling what other people think? So within my research, I use what we call a time estimation control task. So when I said ready, steady, go there, you counted your heartbeat. So in the control task, people actually count the number of seconds. Now, by doing so, we expect that to also be related to IQ or intelligence if there is any relationship. We don't necessarily find this, and nor do we find this relationship we found between internal sensations and emotion to actually break down after factoring people's performance on the time estimation task. Apart from telling people like me I need to go and be more empathetic, what implications does this have in in the real world? I think clinical implications, if there are any, may be some of the most important that we have seen. We know, for example, that people with autism spectrum disorder struggle with understanding social situations and may also have difficulties with processing their internal signals. So it may help us better understand and even manage that condition. The same applies to a whole host of other clinical and psychiatric conditions. So by understanding this whole process may help us to actually understand and manage those conditions. That was Poonit Shah from Anglia Ruskin and that work was published in the journal Cortex. 
And we just did that test again on Tim and I'm afraid to say he did very well. So he's clearly less of a callous monster than I am. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, the empathetic Tim Revel, and with the callous monster Georgia Mills. Still to come, the pests that prove to be environmentally friendly and a look into languages and how speaking the right one can impact your bank balance. But first, it's time for our weekly misconception, and Kat Arney has been getting her teeth into a very fruity legend. The history of science is peppered with fascinating and funny anecdotes explaining how great minds hit upon their brightest ideas. One of them is the image of Sir Isaac Newton sitting quietly under an apple tree, only to be bonked on the head by a falling fruit and inspired to come up with the theory of gravity. It's a wonderful and well-loved image that tells a simple story, but sadly, it's simply not true. The legend starts in the late 1660s, when Newton had been sent back to his childhood home at Woolsthorpe Manor near Grantham in Lincolnshire due to an outbreak of bubonic plague at Cambridge University, where he was studying. According to William Stukeley, who wrote a biography of Newton in 1752, Newton himself recounted that, After dinner, the weather being warm, we went into the garden and drank tea under the shade of some apple trees. He told me he was just in the same situation as when formerly the notion of gravitation came into his mind, occasioned by the fall of an apple as he sat in a contemplative mood. Why should that apple always descend perpendicularly to the ground, thought he to himself? Why should it not go sideways or upwards, but constantly to the earth's centre? Assuredly, the reason is that the earth draws it. There must be a drawing power in nature. Nice as it is, something doesn't quite add up here. Newton only told Stukeley the story in 1726, a year before his death in 1727, and a full 60 years after the alleged apple incident. The French writer Voltaire also mentioned the story in an essay penned in 1727, saying, Sir Isaac Newton, walking in his gardens, had the first thought of his system of gravitation upon seeing an apple falling from a tree. It seems strange that Newton wouldn't have mentioned such a key moment sooner, although maybe he was a bit embarrassed about something so humble leading to such a great idea. As a clincher, Newton's own notes show that he was grappling with his ideas about gravity before he went back to Woolsthorpe. Like all good legends, the story of Newton's apple tree probably has a root in the truth. Watching the apples falling from the trees might have helped to focus his mind on the nature of gravity and shape his theory. We can certainly say that it probably wasn't an instant inspiration, and definitely not a bonk on the head. But even if it's a bit of scientific fabrication, the story of Newton's apple is still a great piece of scientific communication. It's certainly a handy and easily understandable example of gravity that most people will have witnessed, which doubtless Newton used when explaining his theory. Katani, and if you have a juicy myth you'd like us to crunch on, send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Speaking of eating, these days it seems that we are always hearing about the latest wonder pill that will help you to get fit, often with very little science to back it up. Well, this time things are a little different. Scientists at the Salk Institute in California have discovered a new pathway used by the body during exercise, and we are able to recreate its effects in mice by simply giving them a pill. The mice were able to run for a much longer period of time and gained less weight. 
Tom Crawford spoke to senior researcher Weiwei Fan to find out how it all works. This involves a protein called PPAR delta. So it is a lipid sensor. And exercise activates this protein. And this turns up genes that burn lipid and turn down genes that burn sugar for energy that your muscle needs. So basically, when we exercise, this protein is activated and it causes the muscles to burn fat instead of sugar. Uh, Exactly. So that's why we think this is really interesting because previously people thought turning up the genes in lipid burning is more important. But now we're showing actually the glucose is the limiting factor in endurance determination. I guess the next question then is, if you've identified this protein, which switches from burning sugar or using glucose to instead burning fat, then can we make this more active? And would that give a boost to endurance? Exactly. Yeah, that's what we showed in the study. So when we gave mice, when they gave them this drug, called GW1516. Uh, This is a chemical that activates PPR delta. So the mice that had this drug for eight weeks, uh, when we test their endurance capacity, um, they can run about 270 minutes. And the control mice, the mice that were not on this drug, so they could only run about 160 minutes. And the increase was about 70%, and that's huge. With the idea here being to increase fat burning in the muscle instead of glucose, then surely this would also, for example, result in weight loss? Yes, I think this drug will give enormous uh, health benefits. And uh, something we can think about is obesity, type 2 diabetes, and uh, fatty liver disease. So did you actually see any changes in in the weight of the mice? Actually, yes. So for these mice, we call them normal diet. So this is just a diet with normal amount of lipid and sugar. When we give the mice a normal diet, they slightly lost some weight. And the weight loss was mostly on fat. But when we gave these mice a high-fat diet, the change is enormous. So when we compare the mice on high-fat with the drug and to mice on high-fat without the drug, uh, we saw a 50% reduction on uh, weight gain. So that's huge. And the good thing is it mostly uh, happened on fat mass. So the muscle mass uh, doesn't change, but the mice, they just had less fat. Are you planning to hopefully try this out in humans? Like, you know, if you could say to somebody, I can give you a pill and you will reduce your your weight or something by 50%. That's incredible. Yeah. So I think that's our ultimate goal is to apply uh, our finding in humans. Right now, this drug is not allowed to be used in human because it has some uh, really bad uh, side effect. But our lab is uh, developing, we call the next generation uh, PPR delta activators. And now we have some prototype that actually can give the same benefits, increase the endurance and uh, uh, fat loss. And we are pretty sure that this new drug um, has very limited uh, side effect. And uh, we're hoping that this new PPR delta activator can be uh, tested in human soon.
Weiwei Fan speaking to Tom Crawford, and that work was published in Cell Metabolism. Now, worldwide, we still use over a trillion plastic bags every single year. And one of their constituent materials, polyethylene, can be very difficult for nature to degrade. Well, Katie Haler has been investigating a new unlikely ally in the fight to reduce our waste. The plastic carrier you took home from your last shopping trip could be sitting on a landfill site for years, and some don't even get there. Plastic bags can end up in the natural environment, threatening wildlife and damaging ecosystems. So how can polyethylene bags be quickly broken down? Surprising research from scientists at Cambridge University and Universidad de Cantabria suggests that a humble worm could be the answer. I spoke to Cambridge biochemist Chris Howe. The wax moth is a moth that is a serious pest inside beehives. Specifically, we've actually been looking at the caterpillar, sometimes known as the wax worm, the caterpillar of the wax moth. They are a serious pest inside beehives. They will break down beeswax. But on the other hand, one of the more interesting, more exciting things that we found that they can do is that they can actually also break down plastic. So we found that they can break down the plastic polyethylene. This is plastic bags, right? This is plastic bags. A lot of the experiments that we did, we did with plastic bags that we got from a a supermarket in the marketplace. This is not just any old plastic bag. It's just any old plastic bags. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No points for guessing which supermarket. (laughs) How did this come about? Was this in the lab? Well, this was a discovery by Federica Bertacchini, who is the lead author on the project. She's also a keen beekeeper, as well as being a developmental biologist. She was cleaning out her beehives for the winter, and they had some of these waxworms in them, and she picked them out and put them in a plastic bag, and then came back a few days later and discovered that actually they'd made holes in the plastic bag and they'd escaped, and as a good scientist, she thought, that's interesting. I want to, want to know how they managed to do that and see if we can exploit it. One of the experiments we did involved putting about 100 waxworms on a plastic bag and leaving it for about 12 hours. They managed to break down about 100 milligrams of plastic. This particular plastic is actually very difficult to break down, so to get any breakdown at all is, is really quite significant. Chemically, it's, it's made of a whole string of carbon atoms end-to-end with hydrogen atoms attached to them. But that carbon-carbon-carbon-carbon backbone is really quite stable and quite difficult to break down. And it's that that you think these moths are targeting? Absolutely. That's, that's what we think they're breaking down. One of the things that's important is that the worms are actually chemically breaking down the plastic and not just chewing it up. So we, we made a, a homogenate of the caterpillars. By homogenate, you mean you just squish them together? We squished them. Yes, technical term, we squished them um, to make a kind of <laughs> oh, caterpillar. Cater- I, I can't say that no caterpillars were harmed during the course of these experiments. Right. Um, we squished them in a pestle and mortar, spread some of the caterpillar puree on top of the plastic and then left it for a while and then measured the amount of plastic that had been broken down. And and that showed us that it must be some kind of chemical process rather than live caterpillars physically chomping away at the plastic. And then another approach was to use a microscopy technique called atomic force microscopy to look at the surface of the plastic. And you can see that the plastic has become much more... Um, corroded, if you like, as a result of the the treatment with the caterpillar puree. 
So these carbon-carbon bonds are mm -hmm. being broken. What is being produced? One of them, we think, may be a compound called ethylene glycol, which is a chemical that contains two carbon atoms in it and is also the chemical that's better known as antifreeze. But there are certainly other things being produced as well. You can't see them, so how do you know that they're being produced? For that, we used a, a chemical technique that's a kind of spectroscopy to look at the ability of particular compounds to absorb light of particular wavelengths. It gives you a kind of signature of particular compounds. Why do you think these caterpillars are breaking these bonds? What's in it for them? The plastic is actually chemically quite similar to the beeswax. They've evolved to be able to break down the beeswax. We don't actually know if it's the caterpillars themselves or if it's the bacteria living in the guts of the caterpillar, and that's one of the things that we need to find out. But because they're able to break down beeswax, that means that they've also become able to break down this plastic. What does this all mean for recycling? Are we going to be seeing caterpillar farms next to every recycling centre? Well, one thing that it definitely doesn't mean is that we should be able to carry on using plastic in, in a reckless way. It's going to be a long time before this approach, if indeed it ever does, become applicable for breaking down plastic. One of the things that we need to do is to find out more about how the caterpillars are chemically breaking down the plastic. And we think it must be an enzyme that's involved. And if we can isolate the enzyme, then we can understand more about its mechanism. And we can also, we hope, get hold of the gene, or genes if it's more than one enzyme, that contain the information for making it. And then what we might do is put that gene into bacteria that we can grow up very easily at large scale. And that would give you a large vat, if you like, of bacteria that are then able to break down the plastic. So there's not going to be beehives and caterpillar farms all over the cities? I don't think so, but I'm happy to be proved wrong if that's how it turns out. <laughs> Katie Haler there, talking to Cambridge biochemist Chris Howe. And that work was published in Current Biology. That's right, you are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and Tim Revel. As you've probably guessed, in the next half hour we're going global as we explore languages. Can speaking more than one be a good exercise for our brain? And is our ability to save money purely down to the way we talk? But before that, how does your brain turn speech, which after all is just a series of vibrations at different pitches and volumes, into meaning? It's the primary method of communication in pretty much every culture in the world, but we still don't totally understand how it works. I went to see one group who are investigating how patterns of syllable use come into it by putting hats on babies and playing them nursery rhymes. So I'm Usha Goswami and I'm director of the Centre for Neuroscience in Education at the University of Cambridge. Well, we know that there are energy patterns in the speech signal, which of course we're not consciously aware of hearing, but which provide acoustic landmarks for the brain so that the um, sets of neurons in the brain, which are basically firing electrical signals at different rhythmic rates, can synchronise themselves with those rhythmic rates in the speech signal. So does that mean that, say, when I'm talking, uh, neuron cells in your brain are lighting up in the same pattern of speech that I'm actually using? 
Exactly so, in a very complicated pattern, because there are lots of different speeds of rhythm in what you're saying. And the brain is tracking all of those speeds at the same time in a kind of hierarchy of um, rhythms, which then get bound together and you just perceive speech. You're not aware of all that hard work your brain's doing in the background. How did we find out about this pattern of firing in the brain and why do we think it's important in understanding speech? This is actually very recent work, mainly with adults. I think we're the first project in the world to look at the same mechanisms in the infant brain for babies. But it became clear that without these acoustic landmarks, which are these energy changes, the brain didn't know how to synchronise with the signal. So it didn't know where the syllables were, for example. If you take these acoustic landmarks out, then you can't understand speech at all. If you put back just little click noises at the right point in the signal, then speech becomes intelligible again. So all of us will stress some syllables more than others. So words like mother, father, they have a strong first syllable. And even if you're whispering them, there'll be a stress difference or an energy difference. It's those energy patterns that the brain's interested in. I mean, if you say mother, that already sounds really weird. And that's something that a child with dyslexia finds it hard to hear. They don't really hear those mispronunciations of stress. But we're interested in the very beginning, the very get-go, how infant brains process those patterns of stressed and unstressed syllables. And are these stressed syllables common across all languages? Well, one uh, finding motivating our project is that, on average, all human languages produce two stressed syllables a second. So that's a kind of acoustic skeleton that the brain can use, whichever language you're born into, to begin acquiring the hierarchical rhythms that we were talking about that are in the signal when we speak. The reason it's the same across languages is because we all make speech the same way. We all have similar throats and larynxes. And so it's the way that our mouths operate that determine this twice a second beat. So how are you looking into this exactly? Well, we're hoping that mothers will bring their babies in from the age of two months so that we can um, listen to their brain, listen to these electrical signals taking place in response to um, being sung nursery rhymes. Along came a spider and sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. To hearing um, somebody saying a syllable at this twice a second rate. And we've also got a drum beat at that rate as a very sort of pure stimulus of this acoustic landmark theory. So my name's Kirsten. And who's this? This is Lexi. How old is Lexi? She is nine and a half weeks. So we collect the data by putting a a sort of swimming cap of sensors onto the infant's head. And these are very um, like little sponges, very sensitive to any electrical activity that's happening underneath the scalp. And the computer just measures that and then measures whether that synchronises itself with the different nursery rhymes or the different drum beats or whatever we're playing. So you can look at the uh, electrical patterns from the brain and see if they're synchronised on the screen with what you've been playing out to the babies. You can see whether they're synchronised with millisecond accuracy. It's a really, really temporally accurate measurement. You have your nice hat. Oh, that's surprising, right? You're quite beautiful with it, you know. <laughs> it suits you perfectly. Ready to do science? Over the next few years, Usha and the team will be following up with children like Lexi to track how their language skills develop and to reveal if there is a link between how well their brain's synchronised with rhythms and their growing language ability. I think individual differences in this ability to align your brain rhythms with speech rhythms could be really important for how quickly and efficiently you acquire language. 
And would it be possible this, it seems incredible, this this sort of a fundamental pattern in the brain that's across everyone. Can we use this somehow to, I don't know, uh, learn language faster or help our memory or maybe learn different languages? We can definitely use it to help children who have language difficulties because different projects in my group are looking at helping children with dyslexia through learning drumming, for example, and drumming in time with speech. And also children who have overt speech and language difficulties can be helped by having a background pattern of beats that helps them with the phrasing of speech. So could the importance of synchronising to a rhythm explain why we all love telling babies nursery rhymes? I think there's something fundamental about metrical patterns. So poetry exploits the same thing, or Shakespeare. This patterning is very perfectly aligned when we're stressing our syllables at regular intervals. And that's what we do in nursery rhymes, which are metrical poems. To see a fine lady upon a white horse With rings on her fingers and bells on her toes She shall have music wherever she goes Usha Goswami there from Cambridge University. We heard there that every language has the same pattern of stressed syllables. But apart from that, there is incredible diversity. And many people are able to speak multiple languages. But what effect does this have on your brain? Here with us now is researcher and bilingual Roberto Filippi from University College London. Now, Roberto, what advantages can you get from being bilingual? Well, there is recent research that shows that speaking two or more languages may enhance your attention. Okay, so why should that be the case? Well, if you think how a bilingual mind may work, if you speak two languages, you need to suppress one and activate the other one. And you do this every time, in, you know, every, even at night when you dream, because you dream in two languages and you switch between languages, right? So this constant switching may, in turn, give you the advantage of uh, being more focused on what you need to do, even if it's non-verbal material. And therefore, your attention is more enhanced. Are there any other benefits other than increasing attention? Being bilingual, I would say, uh, well, it gives you lots of benefits. First of all, you can communicate with lots of people. <laughs> and when you travel, you don't feel awkward because you can talk to people. Uh, I would say that uh, being more immersed, immersed in, in, a, in a language is it, good to understand the culture of, of, of a different uh, country uh, or different people. So bilingualism is always a good thing. Uh, but again, if it wasn't like this all the time. If you take all the research that was carried out at the beginning of the 20th century, well, actually, bilingual speakers were you know, considered delayed in, in many aspects of cognitive development. This is because compared to monolingual speakers, they failed IQ tests. Therefore, there was a belief that speaking two or more languages were actually detrimental to cognitive development. Uh, more recent evidence, of course, disproved this. And uh, now we can say that uh, there are advantages, and for sure there are no disadvantages of learning two or more languages for children, especially at school. So I would start really, really early to learn two languages. Well, that, so that's really interesting and good to hear. I mean, recently I've started learning Danish because my girlfriend yep. is Danish. So I was wondering whether you mentioned that learning when you're younger can be a bit easier. But do you get any of these benefits from learning a second language later in life, perhaps when you're no longer a child? Yes, uh, definitely. Of course, you need a good motivation and you have one, which is <laughs> really good. <laughs> 
But if you see also my case, I, I learned English when I was already quite old in life. And when I moved to this country, I was already 38. Still, you can reach a good level of proficiency, of course. You don't sound maybe as a native speaker of English. Like, you know, my children, they, they learned English and Italian since birth. So they really sound Italian when they speak Italian. They sound mm. English when they speak English. This is not my case. But in terms of proficiency... And the way you communicate with people, well, I would say there are not particular differences. Okay. And then what about uh, children who are raised bilingually versus learning it at school? Do we, know, do we see any differences in the way they pick up language or the way it affects their brain? Children are really like sponges. They absorb every kind of signal that they can get. Clearly, I mean, speaking to languages within a family is an advantage because they are exposed to two languages since birth. Learned at school early in life, it's equally good anyway, because, uh, you know, the practice of learning two languages is always good for cognitive development. Is there any evidence that being bilingual can have impacts later in life, for example, prolonging things like Alzheimer's or dementia? Yes, there is research showing that a lifelong bilingualism may protect the brain from neurodegeneration. In particular, one study, uh, I mean, they compared monolingual speakers and bilingual speakers who had diagnosed Alzheimer's late in life and the bilingual speakers reported the onset of dementia and Alzheimer's five years later. Clearly, this is quite significant results, but clearly we also need more evidence about this before claiming that bilingualism may protect the brain for uh, developing Alzheimer's. All right, thanks so much for that, Roberto. That's Roberto Filippi from the Institute of Education, University College, London. Hi. Marhaban. Hola. Du lytter til. Estás escuchando. Testamione i la Naked Scientist. And in English now, you are listening to the Naked Scientist. We've heard how learning multiple languages is good for your brain, but could the language you speak actually influence your behaviour? Like, for example, whether you smoke or how much you save for your pension. Keith Chen from UCLA has been investigating the strange effects of speaking a language without a future tense. This is very widespread. So, for example, what's interesting is that even though English is a Germanic language, it's actually an outlier amongst Germanic languages on this dimension of needing to grammatically indicate that you're speaking about a future tense or about a future event. So, for example, it's very, very natural to say morgen regnet es or es, es regnet morgen, it rain tomorrow or tomorrow it rain. Whereas if in English you'd have to say it will rain tomorrow or it's going to rain tomorrow, uh, you'd, you'd basically have to indicate that, that this is going to happen in the future. Okay, so does this difference in um, the way the languages are built, does it affect how we think? Yeah, so there's a lot of evidence in both kind of cognitive linguistics and in psychology that when your languages force you to pay attention to the fact that the future is different than the present – that that subtly makes the future feel a little bit further away than if your language didn't, like German. And where I'm most interested in this effect is the fact that languages that grammatically differentiate between the future and the present 
make the future and the present feel ever so slightly more psychologically distant from each other. Or another way of putting that is that makes your future self feel slightly further away than your kind of current concerns. And what I was interested in is whether or not that actually makes it harder for you to engage in either savings behavior or a healthy exercise and savings behaviors, like exercising now so that you'll be healthier in the future, or not smoking now so that you'll be healthier in the future, or not engaging in unsafe sex so that you'll be healthier in the future. So if we have a future tense, you're say, future me, I will be going to the gym. The fact that I'm changing the way I talk is making me separate the future from the present to a greater degree than if I didn't have this future tense. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. How did you test this then? So what I do is I gather these very, very large data sets that are collected from all around the world where some families speak a language that equate the future and the present, while other families speak languages that make no grammatical distinction between the present and the future. And then what I'm interested in is whether those families, after controlling for a whole bunch of different features of the family, whether those families appear to save more whether those families appear to smoke less, whether they exercise more, uh, and in the long run, whether they're in better health. What's amazing is because of these large data sets, we're actually able to control for a tremendous amount. So we're able to say, let's find, say, two families, both of which uh, live in Brussels on the same block and attend the same church, both of whom have exactly the same level of education uh, and the exact same level of income, but one family speaks Flemish while the other speaks French. And then what we find is that uh, between those two families, uh, the family whose language does not break apart the future and the present saves 30% more each year and as a result kind of retires with 25% more in total retirement savings. In addition to that, in any given year, they're 20 to 24% less likely to report smoking, the adults in the family. They're 13 to 17% less likely to be medically obese at the time of retirement. And amazingly, in surveys, when asked, the last time you had sex with someone who was not your partner, did you use a condom? They're 21% more likely to say yes. Oh, wow. So this is, this is quite some numbers here. Yeah, these are amazingly large effects. In your study, you've controlled for lots of things like uh, wealth and location. But language, I suppose, comes with a lot of cultural baggage. Someone who speaks French is likely to come from a different culture of someone who speaks Flemish. So have you been able to control for that? Absolutely. That's that's the number one confound here, um, is that you worry exactly as you say, that language carries with it or, or is highly correlated with a lot of different cultural values. One thing that makes us confident that while cultural effects are there, they're not what are causing these results, is that um, there are nine countries around the world where native speakers uh, speak both futured and futureless languages. And in every single one of those countries, the speakers whose language break the future and the present from each other save less, smoke more, um, are, are more obese, um, and, and tend to retire with less in savings. So if it's a cultural feature, for some reason, all around the world, it seems to tie extremely tightly to this grammatical dimension. Does this mean that we see in countries like Germany that as a, as a whole, the country's just doing a little bit better because everyone's being a bit wiser? This actually has national effects. When you look at the OECD, okay, which is an association of already developed, rich, democratic countries, 
there's a good amount of variation. You'll be upset to know that both the United States and the United Kingdom, because they speak English, and we're the second and the third worst countries in the OECD in terms of how much we save every year. You know, we're on average like 10 to 15% lower in our national savings rates than, for example, Germany, Finland, uh, the Netherlands, um, Norway, Luxembourg, Sweden, Estonia. Like we, we save less than all of these countries. There's only one country that's worse than uh, the United States or the United Kingdom, and it, its language also breaks the present from the future, um, and that's Greece. Oh, dear. Oops. So, so I guess the next question is, is there any way as English speakers we can adopt this way of thinking and sort of get the benefits of a future tenseless language? A common feature of self-help advice in English is to make lists of goals and plans that you want to achieve and to write those things in the present tense without grammatically separating them from your current self. From a personal point of view, say I want to go to the gym more, I should write a list saying Georgia go to gym instead of Georgia will go to the gym. Absolutely. I think your listeners should definitely try this. And in many studies, it's been shown to help. Uh, for example, you know, one simple thing would be instead of saying, like, I will go to the gym, right? You can just say, uh, you know, like, this week, I go to the gym, or uh, tomorrow, I go to the gym. Like, you could just try and kind of make it seem much more of a concrete plan. Um, and then and kind of literally express it in the present tense. Maybe even more powerfully, you could try and frame it as an identity. You can say like, this week, I'm, I'm an exercise maniac. Or, or this week, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a gym rat. Note to self, make a list, go to the gym, become gym rat. That was Keith Chen from UCLA. Hey. Bonjour. Jumbo. Hola. Vous écoutez de So, we've covered spoken language, but what about non-verbal communication? It starts with sign language and runs all the way down to those little colourful smiley or winky faces. You guessed it, emojis! In 2015, the Tears of Joy emoji made it into the Oxford Dictionary as the word of the year. But should we take them seriously? Linda Kay is with us from Edge Hill University. Now, Linda, what do emojis add to communication? Well, certainly um, what we found in our lab is that people report that they're a really good way to enhance an emotional tone within a text message or on Facebook and things like that. So certainly it's, it's a way of, of adding an, an extra element of emotion that is more difficult to portray in written language. So if you think about a face-to-face -face interaction, obviously we have things like facial expressions, posture, tone of voice. In written communication, obviously that's a lot more difficult to portray so people report that they use emojis um, a lot of the time to add an extra layer of emotional tone to um, a message. And as well as that, there's the role of how emojis can help reduce ambiguity um, in messages as well. So particularly if you're trying to be sarcastic, for example, in a message so as not to offend the recipient of it, you might use a wink emoji, for example, just to ensure that the intended meaning behind the message isn't ambiguous. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. a really important addition mm. to language. On their own yeah. or, or sort of in combination, do they really form a part of the language? How, how do we distinguish between what's language and what's just a smiley? Well, I'm absolutely. I mean, that, that's the key is actually looking at them in conjunction with language. I mean, if you think about the context of, say, a text message conversation, you might see the odd emoji cropping up as a response in itself without any written language there. So like a, a crying with laughter emoji in response to what somebody might have said. But in terms of 
them as a language in themselves, that's quite difficult to kind of identify because I don't think you could have an entire conversation just <laughs> in emojis. I mean, you could try, you know, challenge accepted, but in most cases it wouldn't necessarily make a lot of sense. So looking at them in conjunction with language is important, but we tend to assume that they have more of a nonverbal function. Yeah, can we say anything yeah. about the way our brain interprets emojis or the way we interpret it when we see an emoji? Do we know anything about that area of the science? We know a little bit. There has been some research that's been done. It, it was looking at emoticons rather than emojis, so the actual textual punctuation that forms you know, the, the facial features rather than the yellow icon things. And this research actually used fMRI to actually look at brain activation for participants who were looking at sentences that included emoticons and those that didn't include emoticons. And what you find is actually there's different activation in the brain that goes on. So um, when people are looking at sentences that include emoticons, actually some areas of the brain light up that um, tend to be more associated with nonverbal functions, which don't seem to light up when just reading sentences without them. So this, from that kind of a neurological perspective, there's certainly something to say about how actually the kind of processing of them does have some kind of nonverbal function. But actually at the same time, the verbal functions also light up. So they're, they're actually kind of in between. They're probably serving it a dual purpose for verbal and nonverbal communication, which I know is, is kind of interesting to pin them down, really. Yeah, I, re I really like the idea that emojis are sort of the uh, hand gestures of yeah. the written world. I mean, mm. does, does the use of emojis affect how we perceive someone? I think often we think of it as a sort of simple way or perhaps a, we think of them in a derogatory manner. I mean, how do we perceive people when they use emojis? Well, that's a good question. That's something we've been looking at quite a lot in our lab. And when we, we look at whether people are using emojis on Facebook, for example, um, particularly what we found is when people use smiley emojis, other people who've never met these people before, they're just making a first impression by looking at their Facebook page. What we see is that using those smiley emojis is related to how other people judge them to be agreeable, they judge them to be open to experience, so kind of open-minded, um, and also conscientious as well. Um, so it's kind of interesting that something as simple as just using a smiley emoji seems to have some relation to what other people perceive other people to be at a first impression basis those I mean those perceptions might be very different if those emojis were being used on an email for example because we know there's an awful lot to be said about when and why you might be using them who you're using them with Facebook's a kind of informal kind of social environment so using emojis on there isn't necessarily deemed such a, a bad thing it's, it's kind of a socially acceptable thing to do so it's interesting that we, we see those findings so perhaps as our, our final question do you have a favorite emoji my favourite emoji is probably this crying with laughter one. Um, that's probably the one I use most. Maybe I'm just a very have very funny conversations with people. Don't know what it reveals about me, but. <laughs> Thank you very much, Linda. Uh, that's Linda Kay from Edge Hill University. And thank you to all our other guests this week Usha Koswami, Roberto Filippi, and Keith Chen. And now it's time for question of the week. Katie Haler has been sounding out this question from John. As all sound is simply vibrations in the air, and therefore musical notes are the same, then why do we hear the same note as a different sound when played on different instruments? Why does an A-sharp played on a piano sound different from an A-sharp played on a trumpet? Here's Mike Newton from the University of Edinburgh to sharpen our senses to John's musical musing. The sound produced by a musical instrument isn't in fact just a simple vibration, but is made up from many different vibrations happening at the same time. For example, when you pluck a guitar string, the sound you hear is remarkably complex. 
Such a sound is made up of many simple vibrations, each with its own frequency, and all of which sound together. For the guitar string, the frequencies of these sound components, as we call them, are related to each other in very simple ways. The lowest frequency component in the sound is called the fundamental frequency. The next lowest is called the second harmonic, and it has a frequency that's almost exactly twice that of the fundamental frequency. The next highest again is called the third harmonic, and its frequency is three times that of the fundamental. And so it goes. A typical piano note might include several dozen frequency components. So the sound produced by any musical instrument is made up of different amounts of these tones. The particular combination of these tones is what makes instruments sound unique. But why do these combinations differ? The two most important factors here are the size and shape of the main resonating components of the instrument, such as the guitar string and body, and the way the vibrating parts of the instrument, such as the strings, are driven into motion. This is why a guitar can sound both dull if gently plucked with the pad of your finger, or bright if aggressively struck with a plectrum. Right then, Mike. Get some instruments out of their cases and play as an example. Two musical sounds with different amounts of exactly the same simple building block tones. One is clearly a trumpet and the other unquestionably a guitar. The basic sound components are the same in these examples and so the perceived pitch we hear as listeners is the same. But the sonic texture of each of the sounds is clearly different. This sonic texture is a property of sound somewhat loosely referred to as timbre. As human listeners, we have a pretty incredible hearing system that analyzes the multiple simultaneous sonic building blocks in any sound and weighs them all together so that we only hear something that seems relatively simple. So there you go, John. The frequency or pitch of a piano A-sharp, for example, is the same as a trumpet's A-sharp. But the different combinations of sound components contributing to the overall signal of a note explains why the timbre, or sound quality, sounds different. And that's how we pick out one instrument from another. Next time, we'll be thinking over Kevin's tiring topic. When we exercise our bodies, we get tired and have to stop after a bit. But eventually, we get fitter and more endurant at those tasks. I know we can suffer fatigue in certain mental faculties too, Decision fatigue springs to mind. If we perform difficult mental tasks, does our endurance at those tasks improve over time too? Or are we doomed to make poor decisions in the afternoon forever? If you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientists.com slash forum. Or indeed get in touch and let us know your favourite emoji too. And that just about wraps us up for this week. This programme was produced by Izzy Clark. Next week we have a special programme all about maths. To celebrate the launch of our new video series, Naked Maths, be sure to check it out. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Georgia Mills. Thank you for listening. Thank you.